We're in Micah 2. Micah 2. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 13 this morning. One of the, um, the most dangerous things in the world are false teachers, false prophets. Men and women who claim that they speak for God. And yet, while claiming they speak for God, they teach error and lies. And some of them just might be deceived. That might be their problem. Paul says that some of them are deceived and they are, they are deceiving and being deceived. But Paul also says that the false teachers, they are ravenous wolves who will come in and they won't spare the flock. They'll rip people apart. Peter says they secretly introduce destructive heresies, heresies that damn people to hell. Jude says they creep in unnoticed. How do they creep in unnoticed? Paul says they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They put on a mask. They put on a good show. They know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. They know what they need to do. Yet Paul describes their teachings. They, they, they look like good teachers. They sound like good teachers, but they teach doctrines of demons. Doctrines that will condemn you. Someone once asked R.C. Sproul, how do you spot a false teacher or a false prophet? And his answer was, usually by the hairdo. Well, the hairdo usually won't tell you if it's a false teacher. But there is another way you can spot a false prophet. It's one of the ways that the New Testament gives you to spot them. And that's their life. One of the big indicators of a false teacher is a sinful lifestyle. Peter said that many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow them in their lack of self-control and their unrestrained indulgence in their flesh. They'll violate every social and moral boundary. A sinful life is the hallmark of a false teacher. Jesus told his followers, by their fruit you will know them. Last week in Micah 2, 1-5, through 5, we looked at the greed of the land barons who stole and sold people's houses, their homes, their inheritance, who abused people so that they could get what they wanted. And this week, Micah is still targeting the land barons. But he's going to add another group of people into his list of targets. And that is the false teachers that were supporting the land barons. And likely were profiting off of the land barons. And the land barons would go out and commit all this sin and injustice, and the false prophets would go out there and tell them God is pleased, and this is wonderful, look how God is blessing our nation. And so Micah hones in on these false teachers. I've entitled today's class, Prophets of Prophets. Because these false teachers, like many today, preach a message focused on wealth and prosperity, all the while they ignore the danger of sin. And the consequences for sin. They preach light-hearted, soft messages that say nothing of sin. And they fill people's hearts with nothing but empty promises of prosperity. While allowing them to run headlong into their sin. And so this morning in Micah 2, we're going to get five characteristics of false prophets. Five characteristics of false prophets. Let's look at the first one. The first characteristic of a false prophet... They hate people. They hate people. That is to say, they hate everyone but themselves. 
They're very loving, just not to anyone other than the person they shave with in the morning. This is in verse 6. He says, do not speak out, so they speak out. Do not speak as an imperative. This is actually a command. This is the false teachers speaking. And they're speaking to Micah, and they're telling him, do not speak. And the word he uses here for speak is not the normal word that you would have for, let's say, a conversation. Speak to me personally. This is a word that's oftentimes used to refer to prophecy. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20, verse 46, God tells him, Son of man, set your face towards Taman and speak out against the south and prophesy against the forest land of the Negev. Here, Ezekiel is commanded by God to prophesy. And the word he uses here for speak is the same word that's used in Micah 2, 6. The root of this word refers to pouring or to dripping, like pouring a liquid. It's used to describe deceptive speech. Proverbs 5, verse 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is all of her speech. The adulterous woman comes to you with words that sound really nice, but they're very deceptive. And that's how the false teachers describe Micah's preaching. They use this word, it's a derogatory term here. In, modern, in a modern way to say this, you could say they say to him, Hey, Micah, stop spewing your drivel and your nonsense. Stop your ranting and raving. We're sick and tired of hearing about it. This was an insult. And so Micah quotes them and says, So they speak out. And here he takes that same word they used to insult him and demean his prophecy. And he turns it back on them and says, everything that they're saying, this do not speak, it's nothing but drivel. It's nonsense. There is a consequence when they say, do not speak. If the prophet, if Micah, if Hosea, if Isaiah, if all the prophets do not speak out against sin, if they do not speak about judgment, what's the consequence of that? The consequence he gives in the next part of the verse, verse 6 again. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Micah gives his rebuttal. If they do not speak, he's referring to the true prophets, and you could also say he's probably referring to the false prophets as well. If they do not speak about these things, what are these things that he's referring to? He doesn't name it here. He expects that you just know. These things refers back to the judgment described in the first part of chapter 2. If the prophets do not speak about the judgment, what was that judgment? Verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. Beginning of part of chapter 2, the land barons were scheming and planning evil on their neighbors. And God turns around and says, I am planning evil on you. I'm going to bring a calamity on you. Verse 4, on that day they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to the apostate. He apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching out a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. He's going to come in, he's going to wipe out your country, he's going to take your land, and he's going to give your land to a bunch of pagans. That's the judgment that was promised in the first part of chapter 2. 
And Micah says, look, if the prophets don't preach about judgment, if they don't tell the people the truth, if they don't say that sin is horrible, that it brings problems, it brings consequences, they'll never turn from their sin. But the people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear hard preaching. What they want to hear is something that makes them feel good. Sinners hate hard preaching. Remember when you were an unbeliever? How much you hated really good, solid preaching? And the people in Micah's day didn't want to hear it either. And in fact, Isaiah describes them. Isaiah 30, verse 10, who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Tell me something that's going to make me feel good. Give me pleasant words. Tell me what a nice person I am. Tell me how much God loves me. This is the kind of preaching that they like. They like the false prophets. They enjoy the false prophets. Jeremiah 5, 31, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule in their own authority and my people love it so. This is what they want. Notice the end of that verse and he says, but what will you do at the end of it? Yeah, you get what you want now. Yeah, they're going to make you feel good for the moment. But what's the consequence of that? Back to 2.6. Into the verse, he says, reproaches will not be turned back. This is why Micah was unwilling to give in to their demands. He was unwilling to soften the message. Reproaches will not be turned back. Reproaches refers to public humiliation, disgrace. That disgrace will come upon them in judgment. If the prophets do not preach the truth, nobody's going to repent of their sin. Nobody's going to turn from their sin. If the prophets just preach feel-good messages, the hearts are just going to be hardened. And they're just going to continue to go down the rabbit hole of sin. And the result of that is they will face judgment. In giving the people what they want, the false prophets were ensuring that the people would face God's wrath and judgment. And they were doing that for their own sinful benefit in the moment. So that they could be liked or they can make money. Micah was showing his love for the nation. He was showing his love for his neighbor when he told his neighbors, judgment is coming. That's not what the false prophets were doing. They were unwilling to tell the truth. They were even unwilling to allow Micah to tell them the truth. They could have just said, look, we'll be quiet. Micah, you be the bad guy. You give them the bad news. That would have been better. But instead, they go to Micah and tell Micah, no, no, you stop speaking. And then they went out and lied to the people. Instead, they went out and preached exactly what their audience wanted. They gave feel-good messages. They explained away the guilt rather than confront it. God, through Micah, comes to him and says, look, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. God's going to wipe out this nation. And they say, no, 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 everything is fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. God's not going to hurt this nation. Everything's just fine. Jeremiah 6, verse 14, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. 
but there is no peace. Just telling them a bunch of lies so they can feel good. It's not loving to lie to people. It's not loving to hide the reality of somebody's sin and the consequences of their sin from them. There's nothing loving about churches today that refuse to do church discipline, who allow their members to run headlong into sin and don't bother to tell them the consequences. And don't bother to tell them the truth. It's only when a prophet or a preacher confronts sin and declares the truth of judgment that men are going to repent. And if they refuse to do that, they're essentially telling the people, I'm perfectly fine with you facing judgment. This is what happened in Paul's day in 1 Thessalonians 2. He talks about people trying to prevent him and others from preaching the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Verse 15. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. They killed God's messengers. And not only are they hostile to his messengers, but they're hostile to all men. How can he say they're hostile to all men? Verse 16. Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. You won't tell them to stop. You won't warn them of the judgment. You won't allow them anyone else to preach the truth to them. To give them the gospel. You hate them. Because you're allowing them to fill up their sin. To go headlong into their sin and then face judgment. The false prophets of Micah's day hated the people they were preaching to. It's true of people today, pastors today who preach on who say preaching on sin is judgmental or harsh. I heard a pastor on a television show, you may have heard this. He was asked why there's an absence of preaching on sin in his church. You know what his answer was? Well, I just want to be loving. I'm going to let the 40,000 people in my church go to hell so they can think I'm loving. That's the first characteristic of false preachers, false prophets. They hate people. Second characteristic, false prophets distort God's nature. They distort God's nature. Look at verse 7. Is it being said, O house of Jacob? He's going to give us some of the arguments that the false teachers are making. Mike is going to go out there and he's going to be preaching and then these false teachers are going to give kind of an argument against his preaching and say why they think his preaching is wrong. Verse 7, what's their first argument? He goes out and preaches judgment. He goes out and says, destruction is coming on the nation. And they respond, is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? God wouldn't judge us. God's mercy wouldn't run out. He's not going to do that to us. Micah, don't you know what Moses wrote? Exodus 34, 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Haven't you read Moses? He's slow to anger. He's not impatient. Or Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, 
are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. See, God is gracious. Which means he, he'll just overlook your sin. There's nothing wrong here. We don't need to worry. And then Micah gives some examples of the judgment that God is going to bring. And he tells them the details of this judgment. And you want, you want to know how they respond to it? Are these his doings? You know, the God I read about in my Bible is a loving God. And he would never hurt people like that. He would never punish people in such a way. He would never plan the destruction of a nation. He would never plan to humiliate us and take us as captives and lead us out of the country in chains and rob us of our inheritance. God would never do a thing like that. That's unloving. Are you really saying that's what God is going to do? You notice what they've left out here, right? They're talking about His grace, His love, His mercy. What have they left out? Justice. Have you heard this kind of preaching today? They've left out His justice. They quote, you know, they may quote Exodus 34, 6, the Lord God is compassionate and slow to anger. But unfortunately, their one-verse sermon doesn't cut it because if you go to verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and justice, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. They forgot that verse. God is gracious. He is merciful, but he is also just. They claim that Yahweh was pleased with them. That even though they were in sin, even though they were in rebellion against God, that God was still happy with them. And he would continue to overlook their sin week after week, month after month, year after year. They believed that Yahweh was more gracious than he was just. Do you see what a distortion is that is of God's nature? They made God to be just as sinful as they were. Just as compromising with sin as they were. But that's not what God said about himself. God didn't say, look, I'm compromising with sin. I'll just let you keep on going forever. No, Deuteronomy 32, he says, vengeance is mine. And retribution in due time, their foot will slip for the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. If they would have just read all of the law. Even in the New Testament, God promises to discipline those who are in sin. And actually, it's, a, it's, it's the evidence he gives that you are an actual believer, that you, are actually, you actually belong to God, is that he disciplines you. Hebrews 12, verse 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If these false prophets could run headlong into sin and keep on going in their sin, it's just proof that they're actually not part of God's people. If you can run headlong into sin and it never hurts, it never has a problem, it's proof that you're not a Christian. And you say, well, you know, God doesn't discipline people that badly. It'll just be minor things. He would never wipe out a nation. Even in the New Testament, that's not true. 
1 John 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will, will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Here's the part. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. There comes a point even in a believer's life where God's mercy runs out. And he will end a physical life. You won't lose your salvation, but he will end your physical life due to sin. God hates sin. No matter what the false prophets would say about it. That's his nature. He hates all sin. He is not tolerant of any sin. And his grace is not there so you and I can sin more. His grace is not an excuse for more sin. Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Grace is not a reason to sin more. It's the primary reasons why you should repent and sin less. If God is so gracious, why would I want to continue in sin? And that's Micah's argument. God never promised that he would avoid judgment on you. And God bringing judgment on the nation of Israel is precisely in accordance with his nature. And now Micah is going to quote Yahweh. Micah 2 verse 7. I'm just going to start at the beginning. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Here it is. Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Notice it says my words. His words do good to those who are walking uprightly, those who are walking righteously. You know, strong preaching that addresses sin doesn't offend the righteous. In fact, believers don't get offended by hard preaching. When you come to church and the pastor really, you know, gives you the spiritual gut punch and goes after your sin, you leave here saying, man, that was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. It hurts, but oh, it's so good. Saints love hard preaching. They love to be convicted by the Spirit. They love to be encouraged to grow in their holiness. Yahweh promised to do good for those that are obedient. For those who strive for holiness, not those who are perfect, because then we're all in trouble. Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, was told if they obey, they will be blessed. If they disobey, what's going to happen? They'll be cursed. Deuteronomy 28, half the chapter is blessings, the other half is all the curses if they disobey. God never promised to reward them for their sin. He demanded that they live holy and devout lives. He says, you be holy for I am holy. And the false prophet says, no, no, live however you want. God will bless you. They didn't preach the truth. They didn't want the people to know the truth. And they didn't want that because they themselves were wicked and sinful. And they wanted to keep their sin. And that's the third characteristic of a false prophet. False prophets live sinfully. They live sinful lives. Their lives are marked by sin. Look at verse 8. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. 
This is, again, Yahweh's words. And notice he identifies his people, but he doesn't say, my children. He doesn't even call them my friends. He refers to them as my enemy. You have become an enemy toward God. You have become hostile toward Yahweh. And if you're Yahweh's enemy, he's hostile toward you. The same word is also used to describe God delivering Israel from other nations. Nations that are called his enemies. Leviticus 26 verse 3 He says, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, if you live like you're my people. Verse 7, you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Why are they going to fall? Why are they going to run? They're going to run and fall because Yahweh is judging them. Because Yahweh is the one destroying them. They are his enemies. And now Israel is described in the same way. Israel is now God's enemy. Jeremiah 12, verse 8. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. This is not a sinful hatred. This isn't God saying... He possesses some kind of sinful animosity. What he's saying here is he detests how they live, and so he's going to separate himself from them. They live sinful lives, and he wants nothing to do with them. And so he's going to separate. And now Mike is going to give us some evidence that the false prophets live sinfully that their lives really are filled with sin. Verse 8 again. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by, from those returned from war. You strip, I don't think that requires a lot of explanation. They remove, they pull away. They strip off of the robe. The robe here is the same word used for mantle. Uh, it was used in Joshua 7, verse 21, the story of Achan. Achan goes and sees the treasure of Jericho, and among that treasure is a robe or a mantle. Uh, Joshua 7, verse 21, this is Achan speaking. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. This was a very expensive, costly outer robe. It was a prized possession. It was one that you would wear with pride and joy. And you would put that over your undergarments. This would be like your Sunday best. This is your finest clothing. And they would go and they would strip people of their finest clothing. You know, the same thing the Assyrians were going to do to them. And he says they stripped the unsuspecting passers-by. Unsuspecting here refers to those living at ease. They're not suspecting any danger. They're not waiting for any danger. You might say they were trusting and gullible. They had no reason to think that they were in danger. This guy claims to be a man of God. I can trust him. He speaks for God. He wouldn't do anything for me or do anything against me. 
And they were so trusting, they were easy targets, not only for the land barons, but for these false prophets. They even took from those who returned from war. Now this one's a little hard to get your mind wrapped around. Because you think of people returning from war, you're thinking of hardened soldiers, fully armed. And you're like, who's going to go and rob the soldiers as they come back from war? Especially with brute force. I mean, you're not going to go pick a fight with a fully armed Marine, okay? So what does he mean here by stealing from those who have returned from war? This is likely referring to the same legal trickery that they used against everybody else. This probably doesn't refer to brute force and violence, but just cunning and trickery. Jack Riggs explains this. He says, They took the robe of the citizen soldier that was probably the highly prized outer garment that men wore. The robbery may have been that of forcing a man to pawn his best garment to meet interest and capital payments on property that he had mortgaged. They get the guy to take out a mortgage or get some kind of debt. And then they claim, well, I'm going to foreclose on you if you don't pay up. Well, I don't have the money. Well, there's that really nice robe you've got on. Why don't you give me that? Legal trickery. And this is what the false prophets are protecting. This is what the false prophets are encouraging. These are the people that the false prophets are in league with, and they're probably profiting from this behavior. This is what the false prophets won't preach against. They take it from the soldiers. They also take it from women. I looked at this verse last week. The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. The land barons and these false prophets through legal trickery were stealing pasture lands, the source of income, the source of food for families. And then once they deprived you of your income, that wasn't enough for them. They next came for your home and made sure that you were homeless as well. And these false prophets were help, helping them in it. When you evict someone from their home, you evict women from their homes. These were likely widows. And they would evict them and kick them out of their homes. And these weren't, in their opinion, these weren't shacks or shanties. These were homes that they really liked. Notice he says they, they evict her from her pleasant house. Pleasant refers to a, comf a place of contentment. It's a place that she found to be a place of luxury and rest. This was the home she loved. This was her little oasis where she would go to find rest and comfort. They loved these homes. And these supposed men of God would come in and steal these homes from these women. And like we learned last week, they would do it. Why? Because they could. Because it was within the power of their hands to do it. And obviously, if you throw a woman out of her home, who are you also throwing out of the home? Her children. Into the verse, from her children you take my splendor from forever. Splendor here could be translated as glory or majesty. It's often used to describe uh, something that brings glory or majesty to God, something that you would turn back and praise God for. 
in stealing the home, in stealing the land, the inheritance God had given to these children, when these land barons and false prophets stole it from them, they also stole God's ascribed glory because those children would never get to participate in that inheritance. They would never get to enjoy it. And therefore, they would never worship God and glorify Him as He ought to be glorified. That inheritance was God's demonstration of love for those children. And these land barons and these false prophets ruthlessly stole it. And their conduct was so grievous, so wretched, Yahweh had a simple response to them. It's in verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest. This is speaking to the false prophets. Their sinful lives come with a very severe consequence. They were living in the land. God said something about that land. He said, the land that I'm sending to you is a place of rest. The promised land was a place where they were supposed to be able to go and rest and find safety from their enemies. Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 8. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving to you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all of your enemies around you so that you live in security. The land of Israel was supposed to be a place of rest and comfort and safety for Israel. King David, when he was reigning over the United Kingdom, this was probably the, the time where, this, where they had the most security from their enemies where they most fully experienced the blessing of God in captivity, King David said this, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. He's given us protection. He promised to give them rest, and David says he's kept his promise. He's given us exactly what he promised to do. And in return, what did they do? They spurned him. They rebelled against him. Even in the wilderness, Moses and some of the people of Israel, actually most of the people of Israel, spurned God. And he promised Moses, the greatest prophet that they knew, he promised Moses, you will not enter into my rest. Psalm 95, verse 11, therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. And now God serves these land barons and these false prophets an eviction notice. Get out. You're not welcome here anymore. This is no longer a place of rest for you. You will no longer have security here. You will no longer have luxury here. This is no longer a place of blessing for you. Why? Because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction. A painful destruction. The reason this is no longer a place of rest is because of the uncleanness. That word there refers to being ceremonially unclean. Through their sin, they have defiled the land. They've polluted it. It's now unusable. It is now 
unable to be used for what God intended it to be used for. Uh, Jack Riggs, the land which had been promised to them as a resting place and as an inheritance, could be no resting place to those who so misused it. They must be driven out even as the Canaanites were driven out before them, because they had polluted the land through sin and thereby forfeited the right of further possession of it at that time. Your inheritance is now worthless, to you at least. And now you're not welcome here anymore. And now you, just like you did to the children, just like you did to the wives, just like you did to the soldiers, now you will be robbed of your inheritance. And now you will have your costly garments, your costly robes stripped from you. And you will be evicted from the land. God is going to give back to them exactly what they gave to others. Their sin had consequences. Consequences they wanted to ignore. Consequences they didn't want to tell the people about. False preachers, false prophets refuse to preach on sin because they live sinfully. Men who go light on, pre- on sin in their preaching usually do it because they also go light on sin in their own life. They live lives that are marked by sin. There's a principle that your doctrine affects your life and your life affects your doctrine. If you spend enough time in sin, eventually you'll adjust your doctrine to justify the sin. Because you don't want to have to get up and be a hypocrite every week. And so you adjust your doctrine to fit your sinful life. The New Testament gives the life of the preacher as the evidence of his calling. Men who live sinful lives should not be in the ministry because eventually their doctrine will reflect it. It's why Paul in 1 Timothy 4 said, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Be careful how you walk. Embracing sin, even in the smallest form, will eventually cause you to change what you believe so you can justify holding on to your sin. And one day, you may, be, you may find yourself in the same position that the children of Judah were in. The people of Judah, who had embraced their sin for so long, they eventually adjusted their doctrine. And then they turned to the false preachers and said, we love you. And they turned to the true preachers and they said, we hate you, be quiet, get out of here. And they began to attack faithful preachers for merely preaching the truth. They just want someone to tickle their ears. That's how they get there. By holding on to sin. Micah was not that kind of preacher. He wasn't willing to give in and let them live in their sin. He wasn't willing to compromise the message and go soft and give them a lighthearted message so they could feel good. If you haven't noticed so far in Micah, he tells them some pretty hard truths. And unfortunately, the people of Judah didn't appreciate it. They were not happy with Micah for doing it. But they instead enjoyed hearing from the false prophets. And the false prophets really had nothing good to say. This is going to bring, give us our fourth characteristic. They really had nothing good to say. The fourth characteristic of false prophets, they speak nonsense. 
I always think of the so-called prophets on YouTube. Have you seen some of these in the charismatic Word of Faith movement? They get on there and they say some of the weirdest nonsense you've ever heard. I mean, it's just some of the craziest stuff. Just word salads. They, it means absolutely nothing. I, I can't even give you an example. I wish I would have gotten one, but it's just utter nonsense. It means nothing. And that's what these false preachers are going to do. Mike is going to give us a, a hypothetical man. Verse 11. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be a, smoke, a spokesman to this people. This is a hypothetical. The man is a picture of the false prophets that Micah is addressing. And he says this is a man walking after wind. The term here is ruach. Anybody heard that term? Ruach. It can mean spirit. I don't think that works here because the context wouldn't allow it. Here it refers to wind. What does it mean to walk after the wind? You might remember from Ecclesiastes. This is a way to refer to something that describes what is powerless, what is worthless, something that's vain. Solomon in Ecclesiastes said this, I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Have you ever gone outside and tried to chase the wind? It's pretty fruitless. Won't get you anywhere. Ecclesiastes 2.11, Thus I consider all my activities which my hands have done in the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. It was all worthless. This term wind here is a term used to describe what has no substance and no value. And that's how Micah is using it. Here he refers to the teaching of the false prophets. And he's essentially saying, look, it's all a bunch of hot air. It's worthless, it's meaningless, it's trivial, foolish, nonsensical rubbish. I couldn't find any more synonyms that would work. It's worthless. Mike, uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, Michael may be implying that these pseudo-prophets who go around claiming to be men of the Spirit are really nothing but wind. They are simply windbags. Bunch of hot air. They have nothing to say. They speak nonsense. Verse 11 again. If a man walking after wind and falsehood. Falsehood here isn't really describing him lying or being deceptive. Actively deceptive. But falsehood refers to claims that are groundless. Claims that have no foundation in reality or truth. The same term is used to describe the false witness in Deuteronomy 19. Verse 18, the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, that last word there, falsely, is the same word. It describes an accusation that has no merit, that does not align with truth. It doesn't align with the facts. And the same is true with what these false prophets are saying. They come out and they say, well, I'm speaking for God. There's no truth in that. There's no reality behind that. They claim that God is not upset about the sin of Judah. There's no truth to that either. They say God is blessing Judah when in fact the exact opposite is true. Well, couldn't they just be confused? Does this have to be a form of deception? Couldn't they just be confused? They are deceived and they just don't realize that what they're doing is wrong. Couldn't that be the case? 
I don't think so. Because notice, Micah 2.11 again, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies, what they're saying has no basis in truth and they are actively deceiving and lying to people. And what, is, what would the lie be? Verse 11 again. I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor. Now, that sounds really ridiculous in English. Why would someone get up and preach about wine and liquor? Wine, and, uh, wine here refers to water mixed with fermented grape juice. Liquor here refers to, refers to a form of beer. Uh, you'll often see it translated as strong drink. So by modern standards, that would be what we call liquor. Both of these are used as images of wealth and prosperity. To have an abundance, to be overflowing with wine. God is prospering us. And so when they come and say, I will preach to you about wine and liquor, I'm going to preach to you about abundance and prosperity and health and wealth and happiness. God doesn't care about your sin. He just wants you to be happy. He wants you to be wealthy. And so these preachers didn't mention sin. They didn't discuss anything of substance. And they told the people exactly what they wanted to hear. Now, there are other ways Micah could have expressed this idea of preaching health, wealth, and prosperity. But he chose to use the example of wine and liquor. The people willfully and easily drink up the nonsense that these prophets are spewing. Richard Caldwell said this about this. He says, the people, they love delusional words. Preaching that's like wine and strong drink, numbing them to the truth. They want a message that inebriates them, putting them to sleep, even as the sword of God's wrath is dangling over their heads. False prophets promised the people blessing. And they, they would go out and find every little hint that something good was happening. Look at the strong economy. Look, Hezekiah is a good king. Look, our military just won a battle. Look, you've got this fancy robe on that I'm about to steal from you. Everything they could and every little good thing they could find, they used it as a way to point back to God and say, see, God is pleased with us. He's not going to judge us. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. That was a bunch of hot air. Because God was not speaking to them. And God was not pleased with the nation of Judah. And judgment was coming. Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel describes false prophets. He says, They see falsehood and lying divination, who are saying, The Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their words. That last phrase is really telling. They sit there and make all these promises on behalf of Yahweh and then hope. I hope it comes true because I know it's not from Yahweh. And it's this kind of man who's chasing after the wind, who speaks a bunch of nonsense, who lies, who has no facts backing up what he claims. It's this kind of man, Micah says, he would be a spokesman to this people. This is the kind of man that Judah wants preaching to them. The word here for spokesman is the same word he used back in verse 6. It refers to dripping. It refers to the words of a false prophet. 
The man is lying, he's deceptive, he's a windbag. And he's the one that Judah chooses to be their preacher. They would rather have him than they would have Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Micah or Isaiah or Hosea or Amos. They would rather have this guy preaching to them. Why? Why would anybody want this guy preaching to them? Easy answer. Because like their preacher, they love their sin. People don't stay in churches that preach light messages and avoid sin. They don't stay in those churches because they're forced to. They stay in those churches because they can be comfortable there. Because no one is going to convict them of their sin. They're not going to feel any weight. They're not going to feel any guilt. They're never going to experience the fear of God. They get to have a God of their own making who's nice and loving and kind and merciful and he's never just, he's never wrathful, he never brings judgment. And so they can just stay there and enjoy not only hearing about a God that loves them unconditionally just the way they are, but then they get to go home and hold on to their sin. They get to keep their sin and be loved by God. And they hated true preachers. They hated the true prophets. You want to see that? some evidence of that? Jeremiah 26, verse 8. When Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets, and all the people seized him saying, you must die. Why do they want him to die? Verse 9. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house will be like Shiloh and the city will be desolate without inhabitant? He was preaching judgment. And who were the people that were coming to him? Weren't the prophets saying, no, no, spare Jeremiah? Verse 11. Then the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people saying, a death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard in your hearing. The priests and the prophets, the so-called men of God, were claiming that they should execute Jeremiah. Merely because Jeremiah was preaching on the consequences of sin. That attempt to murder Jeremiah failed. I don't have time, but there is another uh, prophet, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, who was also preaching, and um, he fled to Egypt. This is in uh, Jeremiah 26, 20 through 23. He flees to Egypt to avoid King Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim sends soldiers down to Egypt and they arrest him, they bring him back, and the king executes him. Merely for preaching the truth. Merely for telling the king that the city was facing judgment. We need to get to the fifth one here. The fifth characteristic of false prophets, they will be excluded. Now, this comes out of verses 12 and 13. Now, to be sure... Micah makes a really abrupt transition in between verse 11 and 12. He goes from talking about judgment and condemning the false teachers straight into a promise of restoration. And so the only way I can make this fit as one section is if I point out one word out of this, and I'll show you what that is. But I do want to let you know this is a very quick and abrupt change. Verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you. Jacob, I will gather the... I will surely gather... 
the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. Jacob is Micah's way of referring to both the northern and the southern kingdom. And God promises, I'm going to gather both the north and the south. All of Israel will be gathered together like a shepherd gathers his sheep. This same idea is expressed in Jeremiah 23.3. He says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries. Yahweh pictures himself as a shepherd. And his people are his sheep, and he's going to gather them together in the sheepfold. The sheepfold was a, a pin, you might say. And the pin was there to keep the wolves out and keep the sheep safe. And the sheep could rest inside the pen because nothing could get to them. There was a wall and the shepherd was there. But that doesn't mean when he says, I will gather my flock, that doesn't mean he's going to gather every single person who was in Israel or every single Jew. He's going to gather specific people. Notice in verse 12, I will gather the remnant of Israel. Remnant here is a word that refers to what is left over. He's going to gather what remains of Israel. They will be gathered together. Which means there are going to be people who are excluded from the remnant. There are going to be people he will not gather. And that should terrify the false prophets. That should be a warning to them that this future restoration, they will not be included. They will be excluded from it. His Children, his, his people, he will gather together and he will bring them to a safe place. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 37, for the sake of time, I'm going to just give you the reference. He says, and I will bring them back to this place. At the end of that verse, I will bring them back to this place. He didn't say, I will restore them spiritually. He didn't say, I'm going to restore them in heaven He said, I'm going to restore them and I'm going to bring them back to this place, to Israel. And don't think that this group, this remnant, is going to be a small group. Micah seems to indicate this will be a massive crowd. Into verse 12, he says, they will be noisy with men. Noisy just refers to a clamor and uproar. It's used to describe large groups. How is this going to happen? Verse 13. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. The breaker here is actually a participle. You could translate it as the one who breaks through. It just refers to someone or something that breaks through. It's used to describe a breach in a city wall. Or to breach a door. To break through it. And here the term is personified. The person that is going to lead them out of captivity, who's going to break through the walls of their captivity, is going to be a person. They will break out. They will go through the gates of whatever city they're in, and they will return back to the land. And so here's the question. Who is this breaker? Who is this person? Verse 13, the breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before him, before them. The breaker is a king. Well, which king? Is this Hezekiah? Is it David? Into the verse. And the Lord at their head. Let me translate that a different way. And Yahweh is at their head. This king is God himself. Walter Kaiser says, 
This breaker can be none other than the Messiah himself. It is he who will clear the way for the people to break out of their enemy cities, passing through as if there were no gates. This messianic interpretation can be confirmed by the fact that the breaker is also referred to in verse 13 as their king and the Lord, Yahweh. All of Israel's blessings will be realized in the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have time, but Jeremiah 26, 5 through 6 has the same promise of restoration, and it's from the branch of David. The Messiah will bring this about. Has this happened yet? No. Every king in Israel failed to do what this king has promised to do. This king has promised to reign in righteousness. Not one single king in history has reigned in righteousness. This king will bring about justice for everyone. No king has ever done that in the history of, well, any nation. I don't have time, but you can also look at Jeremiah 33, 15 through 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. This is talking about the millennial reign. And people say, well, this will be fulfilled spiritually in the church. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. Because the judgments described right before it are fulfilled literally, physically. And every promise that comes with it are also filled in the same way. This will happen when Jesus returns and he will do exactly what he promised. I'm a little over time. I'm sorry. If you have any questions, feel free to see me afterwards, okay? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises that you are faithful. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have given us a way to see false teachers and false prophets, that we can avoid them ourselves. And we just ask that you would help us to worship this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.